Welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I'm joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi, Tim, how's it going? Welcome back to the show. Thank you, David. Thanks, David. Good to be here. Happy New Year. Happy 2020. Yeah, Happy New That's Year. Right. Well, we are here to uh, continue discussing Leif Anger's book, Peace Like a River. We are going to be discussing... Uh, pages 94 through 148. I think that's what chapters eight through 11 or something like that. Is that, I don't, there's no chapter numbers in the book. So I'm just going based on, uh, based on memory there. Um, I'm making a guess, but it's pages 94 through 148. That much I know is true. Before we do that, I, I want to let everyone know about how they can join the conversation. If you have not already done so, you can head over to Facebook, click, uh, click on a little search bar, type in close reads podcast. And you can join the conversation there. You can also follow us on Instagram and on Twitter at Close Reads Pods. And you can email closereadspodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions or insights or uh, anything else that you want to communicate to us. I also want to let you know that uh, we would appreciate it if you would uh, leave a rating or a review on whatever podcasting app you are using to access this show. If you haven't done that in a while or you've never done that, we would certainly appreciate that. When you give those star ratings, when you leave those comments, it helps us spread the word and also helps us know how we are doing. It helps those uh, algorithms um, you know, make sure that the podcast shows up in, in people's feeds and in uh, the rankings and different things like that. So we'd appreciate that. And then finally, last thing, don't forget that at the end of this month, we are going to be kicking off our Patreon uh, discussion on crime and punishment. So the first episode on that, which will cover the first half of part one of Crime and Punishment, will go up sometime around the 27th. And you can access that if you are a Patreon supporter. So go to patreon.com slash close reads to learn more about how you can support the show to get access to those conversations and then also get some sweet show swag. As well, well done, David. Which we have that was impressive. It's a difficult thing to say. <laughs> it is a difficult thing to say. You know, as long as I've prepped in my brain Give myself a few seconds to to form the words in my head ahead of time. I think I can I can manage it. Um, all right, well, let's dive into the conversation on peace like a river. We're well into the book, and at the end of the last show, or at some point in the last show, I mentioned that those first two episodes up through page ninety three felt like the book book brought us to the end of what sort of served as act one. It almost feels like a three act sort of structure, like a movie structure, and so this takes us into the beginning of the second act. It feels like. And there's a couple things I want to talk about. Um, and in particular, something we talked about last week, I want to come back to the idea of Swede's character because I know there was some offline or online off-air conversation about that uh, relating to Tim's comments and the, the mini debate we had about that. So I want to touch on that in a second. But first, I want to ask you guys about what happened in this section because at the end of that second, second section, at the end of page 93... Davy's gone. He escapes, right? And it kind of... We're kind of in the middle of the drama there. But then we get this sort of... Almost like an interlude with, with yeah. Christmas. And the action kind of... Uh, I was going to say it kind of grinds to a halt, but that's not really true because there's still things going on. But it has this sort of interlude quality to it where what you think is a, what's about to happen, maybe we're going to go on an adventure with Davy. You know, it, right. all the things that might be about to happen... The pace uh, becomes measured, David, it does. David and, right? The pace becomes measured. And in a sense, it the book surprises you again with what it's becoming. With what you think it's going to be is not what it, what it is. Did that... Um, I'll just put this in a very sort of um, overly simplistic way. But Tim, did that work for you? Did that, did that tonal shift? Did that 
that uh, that measured pace work for you, or did it surprise you? Did, did it frustrate you? I'm not. Well, I'm not necessarily saying. Do you think it was did it well done or whatever? Right. I'm just how did it uh, come across? I struggled with it a little bit. I, I think one of the merits of the book is that it's so anecdotal. You know, I mean, even you see that even before the family gets in trouble with the two rough boys, there's a story about going goose hunting and the characters get set up, but it's very, it's an episode. And then there's another episode and it seems like the main plot is kind of, I don't know how to say it. The main plot is um, kind of woven amid all of these little stories about that are homespun that are often very funny. Um, but yeah, this section to your point, David, for me, I, I struggled a little bit because I felt like we were shifting a little bit away from that plot that was established, which is what's going on with Davy. It's not that it's forgotten. Mm-hmm. He keeps yeah, touching right. on it. It's he definitely remembers, but we, mm-hmm. it does feel a little bit like we stray away. Mm. Heidi, did you feel similarly? And we'll talk. I want to talk about why he does that in a second. So you know, you can answer that if you like. But just your impressions of that. Did you find it enjoyable, or did it find? Did you find it kind of threw you off, like Tim? So I think I'm not critical enough as a reader because I once <laughs> I love a book, I just accept everything. Like I don't think is this a flaw? Is this working for me? I just accept it. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's I, fair. I really think and truly as as I'm listening, I'm I'm judging myself because I am also a professional editor. I probably need to be more awake to flaws. <laughs> um, but it totally worked for me. I thought it was great because I I think that there's some really important things that happen in this section that set us up for the odyssey, you know, that the, mm-hmm. the journey that they're about to go on. And, um, and so I just, I, I didn't even think about it until you asked the question. Heidi, is it, is it, um, something like the, the, the psychological school of what do they call it? Something yeah, like that's unreserved, it. unreserved, um, positive regard. Probably. Probably that's, I mean, it, relationally, that's a, that's, that's a plus for Heidi White, but when I should notice things <laughs> in books that maybe it's not, um, I, yes, unconditional positive regard. But isn't that, I mean, like big yes. picture, unconditional positive regard is that's a pretty good stance to the world. I mean, it's not <laughs> like that doesn't denote naivete or doesn't denote that like you shouldn't like recognize that certain situations, um, have caused you, you you need to move forward with caution it doesn't mean that it just means that you approach the world and your relations and you are going to regard the person or in this case the author with um <laughs> i'm trying to come up with words other than unconditional so positive I'm, regard i'm right now goodwill yeah yeah <laughs> goodwill you. that's good um yeah, I do want to talk about me, actually. So, no, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> um, I I think that's true. When I and specifically when I'm reading, I think what would be the purpose of this? So, I I think in this case, I I'll just say, given give one specific example, the little 
anecdote slash interlude, which I think is was so lovely. I just loved it when Ruben pounds his dad on the pounds Jeremiah on the back and mm-hmm. um I mean heals him. Maybe it was medical. Maybe he broke the phlegm out of his lungs. But it also could be evidence that Ruben has the same gift as his father and actually healed him and performed a miracle through the laying on of hands and that, or maybe it's both. There's that question mark, but you need that interlude of sickness and grief. And, and it also felt very realistic to me that a family would huddle together. He lets them stay home from school and which is something I would probably do in that situation. You don't need to go to school. I want my family with me. We need to huddle and gather and prepare that it felt like a time of preparation and also of some, you know, unconscious or maybe fully conscious on Jeremiah's part, healing for the family, a a reestablishing of a new identity before the next adventure. That's interesting. Reestablishing of an, would you say reestablishing of a new identity or establishing of a new identity before the before an adventure? Say that again. How'd right. you say it? I don't remember, but it was something extremely wise, just like what you just <laughs> yeah. said. Somebody's going to yeah, go back. I think, yes. <laughs> Ten seconds. Yeah, the establishment of a new identity as a family that that this trauma has completely made necessary. They are without Davy. They don't know what to do. And I think it's significant that it happens around the time of Christmas and also in winter when Mm -hmm. it's very bleak. And, um, you know, everything in this story is both realistic in every way and also allegorical and symbolic in every way. And that, that's what makes it great. So I, I, I think there is a great break in the action and that, I do want to know it's going to happen, but I did just accept it. I I was thinking about how maybe as a if, for some people who who have read the book before, this doesn't feel like it's stopping the action. Whereas if you've never read it before and you really want to find out what's going on with Davy, maybe it feels more abrupt to to sort of shift away from that. But then also, it's the book telling us, you know, what it's about. That's the thing that, right. you know, I think one of the things, the reasons the book keeps surprising us is because it keeps telling us that it's about so many things. You know, sometimes we say when, when, when a book kind of shifts gears or, or a movie or something like that, it becomes a criticism, like it doesn't know what it wants to be or something like that. But then on the other hand, <clears throat> you know, some works of art can be more than one thing. You know, they can t- be about more than one thing. And you know, the great ones, the truly great ones, the ones that are really memorable are about multiple things. You know, that like that's sort of their core DNA is that they're talking to us about multiple things and uh, asking us questions and asking us to ask questions about multiple things. And so... Okay, so so David, along those lines, yeah. we're, on, we're almost exactly at the midway point of the book. Mm-hmm. At the end of this section? At the end of this section, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe you want to put this question off, but my question is... If this book is not about Davy's escape and the family's attempt to um, have a reunion with him, and it is about that, but if it's not about that and it's about other things, what else is the book about? Heidi, what do you think? Well, I mean, <laughs> David just it's not about zombies, it's about relationships. <laughs> um, I think it is about a lot of different things. And the, the journey to find 
Davy, what happens to Davy is the central problem of the story, but there's a whole lot of other things gathered around that problem. And I, so yeah, I think it's about the family. I think like every great work of literature, then there's, there's a second level that's about the society, um, maybe about literature itself and then, and, and what it means to tell a story or live in a story. And then there's a, a kind of a third ring around that, which is the contemplation of the universal of what it means to be human. And so I, I'm not trying to be vague. I just think there's multiple levels, but this, they are on a journey of the soul. Now they are on a physical journey and odyssey and, um, I really like the comparison, the biblical comparison to the promised land, because a lot of Odyssey journeys have a very specific end point, right? Like they're a, a physical place they're going, like Ithaca. We're going oh, home, yeah. Yeah, or, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, but that's not the case here. It is more like a promised land journey when you're just, you've got to go out on faith. And I'm not even sure exactly what they're looking for. They want to find Davy, but it's even that's a little vague within yeah. the story so far. Yeah. I, I love how it sets up a, a, the this section in particular sets up place because we had they're leaving home. You mentioned a lot of Odysseys, the idea is you're going home. Here they're leaving home. And so it's anger gives us these like steps towards leaving home. So, you know, huh. there's they spend this holiday together, right? And it's got a kind of little women vibe to it, right? We talked about little, and the book actually references that, doesn't it? Uh, it re- references yeah. the scene where Joe uh, cuts her hair Cut, off, and Sweet, hair. Yeah. Yeah, Swede says to him, "If if Marmy had to ask her to do that, would you think it would have been as noble?" Um, <laughs> but, so that's that's a great reference, but it's kind of it sets it up in stages. So on the one hand, we have they spend this holiday together, and it looks going to be it looks like it's going to be a little bit of a sad holiday. Then he gets this job, and they get to enjoy themselves, and then their friends come together, and it shows the value of community. You know, it's in a way it kind of is a little saccharine, um, but then you know it's in the middle of winter. They start selling off their things, and then they hit the road, and so then they leave their place behind, and they're sort of preparing for that. But then they're not quite out in the wilderness completely. First, they like stop at this post office, and he's they're talking about how cold it is. But then there's like this way station. It's almost like you know that's their friend. What is it? August's house. His dad's best friend's house. Last homely house. Right. Exactly. It's the last house. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It's like the last house before they're hitting the true wilderness. And so at the end of this section, he sort of set up the process by which they're leaving. And so it gives us these stages of departure, which is really, which is really interesting and true to so many different kinds of stories. There's like, these are Mm -hmm. motifs, you know, the last, you just, you just gave an example of one of the most classic ones. Um, So it's, it's interesting to me how many different, um, kinds of stories and kinds of motifs he's giving us um, that kind of sort of keeps that. I think that's part of the reason why the book is unpredictable as well, because just when you think you've kind of got a grasp on what sort of story it is, it, be, it, it kind of alludes to a different kind of story or a different sort of motif. I was thinking a lot during this section about what somebody, um, somebody actually mentioned this on Facebook. I think it was a- uh, Angelum. I, Angelum, I think, she she mentioned that it's like a fairy tale, and that's what I kept yeah. thinking throughout this section. I marked mm-hmm. a few spots as I was reading that seemed like it was fulfilling all these different fairy tale motifs. Whether it's you know like the idea of um, 
uh, poor children or winter, you know, um, at Christmas in the winter and it's going to be a real Christmas. And um, even the sort magical of... Magical gifts. Magical and, gifts, yeah. the sort of wise mm-hmm. child concept, um, it, you know, innocent children, um, you know, having to be clever. Um, the question of magic is obviously a big thing. We all use that word loosely here, but magic or miracles. Um like yeah, quests, just quests. Lots of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could just go through and probably make make a list of twenty things that fit into the fairy tale concept. But then, on the other hand, you've got all, like there's allusions to Greek mythology, and I talked last week about how it feels like he's using a lot of epic similes, or at least he's influenced by the use of epic similes. And then you also get like Norse. There's no, there's references to Norse mythology and and boats and ships and all these kind of things. So you can tell anger is well read, but those, all those illusions, all those motifs, I think make the book slippery, but in a good way. Mm-hmm. Right. And also firmly anchored to reality. Like he's not writing a fantasy story. It's not Tolkien. It's, it's a real world story about a real family with a real problem with very concrete experiences. And that just weaves magically together with all the things you're saying. And I just, it's, it's stunning. Like it's a really stunning novel. I love it. You know, what's interesting is that the assessment of Davy's action keeps getting swirled by kind of every, in, in every new chapter, there's kind of an agitation on whether or not Davy is heroic or whether yeah, or not Davy yeah. is a criminal. And yeah, no one can decide. It doesn't just settle. Yeah, right. No one can decide. And and the family's affection for him is the drive. They're not out to rescue him from an injustice, or they're not out to aid justice in abetting him. They miss him. That's the yeah, whole that's point right. that they're trying. That's what they're trying to solve. I think that's why the scene in the in the kitchen at August's house when when Swede and and Ruben are listening and what you hear the they have this discussion about yeah where, where the the August it's, it's August right uh-huh yeah the, where his wife says it talks about how she had told Davy that he should turn himself in and Davy just grinned and she knows that he won't do it and then she goes to bed she's upset with him and I, they have and 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 then they ask Jeremiah if it was justified or if he really did it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And his father says he did it and he essentially says mm-hmm. he, should, he shouldn't have done it. Um, something like that. And so the book seems to not be letting him get away with it. And it doesn't... It, but more importantly, it doesn't have his family saying that he was justified in doing it. Right. I think that's a really important point like in terms of, in, in terms of the sort of moral arrow of this the moral function of this story right like as you said they love him that's why they're going after him they're not going after him because they think he did the right thing right it's their affection for him they're not trying to like you know I, in fact one of the big questions is what are they going to do when they find him <laughs> yeah what are they going to do yeah. back? In, at the beginning of the book i thought that our story was going to be about the father's decision to kind of break the revenge cycle and the brother's decision to pursue the revenge cycle. And I'm wavering on that a little bit now. I don't think that's what the story is. Maybe, maybe that question will reemerge if in fact the family does reunite with Davy. But it seems like that notion that I had like a quarter of the way through is not, is not sprouting. Right. It's not to kill a mockingbird. 
Like that's no. the whole question is, yeah. was he right to do what he did? This is, this is a love story. This, this is not a contemplation of justice that's in the book, but it, and it's not tangential. Like it's, it's interwoven embedded within it, but it's not the thing that we're all thinking about as we're reading the story. We're not thinking, did David do the right thing? We're, they're, they're not, the characters are asking the question, but it is not dependent. Their search for Davy is not dependent on it. It's not a cause they're fighting for. And I love that. I mm. love that. This is like an yeah. age of causes, right? You go out and you. That's such a good point. Hiding. This and, is when 1960. Mm-hmm. I mean, are you talking, are you talking about like us as readers or are you talking about the the era that this book is written in. I was talking about the era the book is written in, and I think it's true for us too. Yeah. We're reading, I mean, so much of the fiction right now is causes. You know, this is, I'm, I'm writing this to defend marginalized people. I'm writing this to defend Western culture, whatever it is that- this, Yeah, for better or for worse. Sometimes it's yes. great and sometimes it's not so good. And the relationships within those kinds of stories are uh, gathered around, oriented toward the cause, not in this book. This is just a, a story of, this is just a love story. Hmm. I was, <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that. I was thinking about how, um, <laughs> like if this was studied in college or something like that, the the ways that people would want to read it would probably be so frustrating. So like frustrating. you could see like Jungian uh, readers, oh, like yeah. just having like looking the Jungian archetype readers would probably have be having a field day with this, like all the stuff about dreams and, uh-huh. and, you know, the subconscious and, and, you know, all the questions of justice that the book's not answering, I yeah. feel like would be the fact that it's not answering them or not allowing the characters to make clear judgments about them. Um, and that the fact that their love for him is sort of the thing that drives them as opposed to their own judgments about justice, like that would must frustrate people, especially right. if you want to read it according to certain archetypal things or it's, or you know, or it's going to have you reading into these characters' motives in really interesting ways. Um, the dream thing is another thing that would go along with um, a lot of the motifs and, mm-hmm. you know, fairy tales and stuff like that. You know, couldn't, couldn't you say that Fantasy. we have sort of um, a Jungian s- subplot through Swede's writing? Yes. I mean, her writing, right, Heidi? Her writing strike me as so Jungian in that she is wrestling with these kind of these dark characters, you know, and in the previous section, she couldn't put them down. She couldn't kill them. Um, in this section, they kind of reemerge. They just, they seem like they are extracted straight from her subconscious and put into this, this darling rhyming meter and kind of westernized. They just strike me as very much, very archetypal. Right. Well, and so are, <laughs> so are Ruben's dreams. Yeah. Right. And so is, so are Jeremiah's relationships like he's the (laughs) the, just the way he interacts with people and there's these two dead crows and he's never seen any never seen him before and they're waving in the wind like it is but it doesn't it i think it works within the story it doesn't seem it's a subplot it's not it doesn't yeah yeah Yeah, it's not like you know you read joseph campbell and then you watch star wars and you're like oh Oh, it's it's a (laughs) one-to-one correlation (laughs) Um, it's it's very it works because of the thing you're talking about before that it's concrete, it's anchored within 
truly a, a truly human portrayal of an actual family in the real world. It's very concrete, so it doesn't feel, you know, contrived. Hmm. There, to me, there is a this reading through. I have felt a very um, Cohen Brothers vibe to yeah. this book. You can see it in your minds. Like I'm picturing it, Tim Burton or the Cohen Brothers, as I am reading it. You know, although to be fair, it might be that the Coen Brothers actually made a movie called Fargo, which takes place in this part of the world in the wintertime. That's so. what I was going to say. I, so. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> but but even the stuff like with the crows, like you could see that in Barton Fink or Miller's Crossing or something like that. For sure. That. For sure. And, that's a great point. And, and, the, and the idea of this, this character, the guy who comes in, the fact that they always, right when they're about to sit down, someone always shows up. That feels like that would be from a Coen Brothers movie. And then the yeah. fact that this guy leaves them an airstream that and then that sets off the adventure like those are these sort of things that are in Cold brothers movies there's always this question of whether something is a miracle or not um and sometimes that's viewed through more of a cynical lens you know as in sort of the job-like story in a serious man and sometimes it's looked at through this very comical lens like through like in a brother um a brother where though <clears throat> but there's always this question of whether it's miracle or whether it's a coincidence and, and whether it's spiritual or not. And, and that sort of energy for lack of a better word off the top of my head right now is, is what I'm sensing here. And like when you see the crows and they go past two of them or whatever, and he says, I've never seen that before. It's this sort of dark imagery that because of what we've been, pardon this word, because of what the book has conditioned us to how to experience it, that there's this question of, wait, is that an omen? Is that purely? Is it? Is it? Um, is it? A, is it some kind of miracle um, illusion? Is it? Is it? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Like because of that, every time you come across something weird, you start asking yourself, "What does it mean?" And in, the, in a Coen Brothers movie, sometimes they purposefully have it in there, and it doesn't mean anything um, because they're kind of trying to throw you off the scent and kind of be, you know, annoying about it. Um, but then sometimes it means everything, and in a way that can be really annoying because it feels like you're trying to sift through everything. But on the other hand, it can make it that kind of weird, odd energy can be really fun. And so that's, that's what I mean when I say it's, it's not just that it takes place in, in a Minnesota and North Dakota in the winter. <laughs> right. But it's true. They're, they're, they're the Coen brothers, these strange events that happen in Coen brothers films. Sometimes they throw you off the scent. They're like, they're false symbols in some way. Now the symbols are loaded with false meaning. They just, you, they seem portentous. Is that the right word? Like they just have so much capacity for meaning. And then at the end of the movie, the next day you're thinking back and you're like, wait, why did that one guy um, right. see a rainbow? A yeah. yeah. Why was there a frog there? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I feel the same way about piece like a river. Like remember the, um, episode i think it was in the first podcast about the he's not a beggar the guy they saw in the yeah, field the tramp. Yeah. and the tramp and the narrator goes takes all these pains to be like yeah he's not going to show up later in the book he's this is not a symbol this is not foreshadowing and i kind of thought wait i don't buy this why is he <laughs> in the book if he's not going to play some sort of a role but and now i have the same question about the crows what's going on with the crows his dad sees something in them. He's a little bit worried about them. Are they going to show back up or are they going to be like the tramp? Right. So, okay. Go ahead, Heidi. Go ahead. 
I yeah, I cut you so off. Hard. No, no, no. Well, and it's incomplete too. Like if it's a truly union story, there'd be three crows, not two. So where else <laughs> one of the characters is a crow, right? If there's, there's these. And the, and the character who's yeah. a crow is climbing the footsteps to a church door. Right. And the right. church door will be gilded and gold <laughs> and lightning is three. Yeah, right, right. But, I mean, I don't want to derail here on all of that fun stuff, but the, I think there's just Google Youngian yeah, if you need to. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Um, there's also some things that don't quite completely fit. And I, I think that that I love that too. The, one of the reasons that Jeremiah says that he wants to leave is to take Reuben somewhere where his lungs can get clear. And instead he takes him North in this, in the middle of winter. And of course he's going to visit August to find out about Davy, but still, I think that all of the structures of meaning that we see in the dreams and in Valdez and, and, um, uh, and the airstream and all that, we kind of need that because the main plot is so chaotic and we're not even sure what they're out looking for. And David, you asked the good, you know, the right question. What are they going to do if they find him? Doesn't that actually just put him in more danger? Um, and so there's, but especially for Ruben, who Ruben just this boy has my heart because um, I I remember listening to, I'm going to derail for a second, but it does come back. Um, I remember listening to JK Rowling when she was asked, why didn't she make Harry Potter more um, talented in the books? And why wasn't he, you know, the Luke Skywalker character? Why wasn't he just this prodigy of magic that had to be trained by the master? And she said, that's not the story I wanted to write. I wanted to write Harry as a vessel for something that was beyond him, for a world that he wasn't prepared for, for a task that he actually couldn't handle, hmm. um, that he that was too much for him and too big for him. And I wanted to throw an ordinary person into an extraordinary uh, situation. I didn't want him to be special. And I, I see that in some ways in Ruben, that he's hmm. an ordinary boy surrounded by extraordinary people uh, in an extraordinary situation. Hmm. And it's all just too much for him. And, and, and he's trying though, like the way that he handles that is he, he clings to the, this family and mm-hmm. and just mm-hmm. loves them and trusts them mm-hmm. um and that feels so vulnerable to me as i'm reading it yeah. um that's why yeah so all of these extraordinary things no you're fine i'm about done all these extraordinary things that are going on around him and he's just this regular kid that's why and i think he's a regular that, kid that has a handicap yeah. yeah well and yet he was his existence is sort of predicated upon a miracle. Right. Um, like he, yeah, he, right. by all rights, he doesn't have, he doesn't really, he shouldn't be alive. Belong, in a but sense. That, yeah. That's why I think the scene where he takes, tears down the house, the, or the, the, um, the shed thing is so uh, meaningful because he is allowed. It's the first time when he has like much agency and he really yeah. is able to take action and do something for himself. I mean, he's making decisions throughout and things like that and he's doing his best, but even like his little sister is the one who makes the food, right? She's writing right. a story. She makes the food. She's doing things around the house. She's nursing. She's extraordinary. He, he's not yeah. even allowed to nurse his dad because they're afraid it's going to kill him. 
Mm-hmm. The doctor's afraid he's, you know, his lungs wouldn't be able to stand up to catching whatever infection is in Jeremiah's body. Um, and so, but then when he's able to go out and do something for himself and, and it, it sort of proves to him and to us um, that he has agency and capability and, and that, you know, I think it's at this point, I think it's put at this point in the book for an important reason. I mean, it could have been earlier on, I guess, but you know, his capability being there, like proving his capability right before they're about to go on this journey, I think is important. I think it tells mm-hmm. us a lot about him and prepares us for him making future actions, taking future actions and accomplishing things in the future. Whereas if he, if he accomplishes something big in the future and he hadn't done anything to prove to build up to that, it would feel probably a little bit like we, he has proven to us that he's yeah, yeah contrived. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's both meaningful thematically and then meaningful just in terms of you think about this kid who hasn't been, who has been, he's been weak, you know, he hasn't been able to accomplish much. Um, he knows his life is sort of a miracle. And then he accomplishes this, this thing that's pretty significant and he earns money for his family and he's able to provide for them. He literally provides their food for them. That's a really meaningful thing, you know, and you can imagine his, the way his sort of, what that does for like his soul, you know, <laughs> especially for a young man. Do you guys remember the first time that you accomplished something like that? You're kind of on your own. You've kind of got to produce here. You're not quite sure if you're up to the job. Do you remember that? Yeah, that has yet to happen. <laughs> David, you're David's got, still waiting I've, on I've it. Got, I've got time. David's like, maybe, this is, maybe today's got, the day. I got married really young because I just didn't see it happening. I needed a lot of help. <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw the end of college coming and I was like, oh, man. I better get married. I gotta put a ring on it because (laughs) (laughs) do you, Tim? I was thinking about that. I there were certain moments that were kind of coming of age moments. I'm trying to remember a moment where I did something that I thought was well past (laughs) well past my capacity. I remember this one time. This is actually the opposite story of that. (laughs) Our family moved. I think after my seventh grade year in high school and my dad had this scrap pile in our backyard. You know, if he ever had a project that he was working on, there were leftover two by fours or pieces of carpet, he would throw it back there and it just festered in the Georgia sun, you know, for years. And so when we moved back, dad wanted to do away with this scrap pile. So it wasn't an eyesore for the people who were moving in. (laughs) And I remember there were these. Do you guys know what soldier crickets are? No, I bet David, they sound you do. Awful. They are awful. Yeah. They are <laughs> awful. Like Google them. They are like terrifying. It's it's sort of like a cricket that is got the back of a skateboard, but it's kind of been given a shape. Like it's got a wave shape. And it's segmented. So it looks like a cross, like this demented, demonic cross between like a cockroach and a Ew, centipede like a and demon. a cricket. Totally. So my job was to clean up the scrap pile. And I knew, because I had been around the scrap pile plenty, that that was the home for all these disgusting creatures. Nope. <laughs> I remember, like, I don't think that dad had any clue what he had assigned me because I was so terrified and I was too young to actually be like, Hey, 
dad, you know, uh, you know, these crickets, I just can't deal with them. (laughs) So I remember in my memory that I had like some sports gear left over. I can tell by Heidi's face that she's Googling them right now. Are you Googling them right now? They're they're really ugly. Yeah, they're awful. I I wouldn't be able, no. So I put on (laughs) a catcher's mask. I put on gardening gloves. I get a barbecue fork. And these, this is the way that I approach the scrap pile. And I'm like pulling stuff off. Ghostbusters. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. And little whatever, you know. 11-year-old man. I mean, I was kind of a little bit older to know that I should have been able to do this, but I just could not do it. I you probably I had some that. dreams about them, about these bugs, and like I'm sure they were informing your subconscious. Yeah. Yes, I'm sure they were. And that was a moment where I could have, like Ruben, risen to the occasion. But I fell short, you guys. I fell woefully short. Did you pay some kids yeah. at did you pay some kids in the neighborhood? No, to no, no. For dad, you? dad was kind of like, "Hey, buddy, what's the problem?" And I was like, "I don't know how to explain. It's these little bugs, these soldier crickets. I didn't know how to explain it to him." And so I think he ended up kind of doing it himself. Yeah, yeah, gross. They are gross, right, Heidi? Yeah. Okay, thanks. So, have you still not done anything that you feel like would make up for that? Wait, me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm still. I'm still making my attempts, David. That's actually what this podcast is about. Do you know, this is this is heavier than it's interesting people. because I can't think of anything in particular like that. Heidi, can you? Well, um, you gave birth. Well, to Well, I have so. had I two babies. Had, yeah, um, which there's that's actually true. Like that that that's kind of a big deal um, because it it's it's a Oh man, it's a physical experience that's so intense and you think you can't do it, but you're also made for it at the same time. And there's something about that that's very transformational. And and that's I think a natural um gift to to women who have children to to experience that. But it's no, as a child though, when I was Ruben's age, Every, I, I had a really soft, easy life, mm. like, um, at least physically, for sure. It was just, you know, go to school, do your homework. You know, if you get tired, you can just skip soccer practice. Like, I mean, there's, there isn't that physical challenge that in order to survive, you have to, you know, conquer these big odds. Do you, um, do you think that perhaps, I mean, do you think that maybe those sorts of things in our lives don't stand out the, you know, like we all have these, like if if, if we really yeah. can rack our brains, there'd be things that we accomplished when we were eight and then 12 and then 16 that transformed us, that helped us grow. But I wonder if those individual things for most people just don't really stand out because there's so much more about the way they all add up to shape us into human beings and the way they transform our souls and our minds and our hearts that, each individual one is harder to to grasp what it actually means. I mean, in a in a story like this, we look at a situ a, a scene like that because of the nature of story and story reading and thinking about story, and it means something. It's representative of something. But in a human life, it's harder to go back and look at specific moments or specific scenes and know what they mean. Especially, you know, in maybe maybe when we're all old, we'll look back and say, "Okay, I can see how that particular thing shaped me." The only thing, right. 
Go ahead. Well, I was going to say one thing I like about this book is that uh, Ruben is writing it from the from the perspective of what seems to be an introspective man looking back on himself as mm-hmm. not a very perceptive child. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. I like that. So, yeah. you know, I, I wonder one of the exercises in those, you know, Jungian psychology, for example, is um, I, I took a class in psychoanalysis when I was in uh, grad school and there's a lot of things wrong with it. But one thing that psychoanalysis does that's kind of cool is that it, you actually tell your story out loud to the therapist or write it down from the very beginning of your life. You don't just go in and say, I'm going through divorce and it's hard and let's talk about that. The therapist is going to say, tell me about your childhood. And that's now a cliche and you lay on the couch and tell me about your childhood. This is lame. But there's something about that, that then you identify those moments in your life that actually are like signposts. Yes. That you're even aware of at the time. You know, you could say like, I, tore down a building in the back of a yard and I got paid $25. That that You wouldn't realize how formative that is until you're an adult looking back on who you were before you tore down the building and who you were after. And I think that yeah, that the is The activity of, of memory the, brings out the significance yes. of that. Yeah, And I think Ruben is... I, I think that Leif Anger, the way he writes Ruben and and embeds within the story all these things that Ruben wasn't paying attention to at the time. I didn't notice at the time that my dad meant dot, dot, dot. I mm. didn't know how that the doctor just wanted me to get outside breathing healthy air, right? Like those, so I, I bet, I, I would bet money that if we were all to sit down on the couch of a psychoanalyst and actually tell ourselves our own story out loud, we would find those moments. They're probably little things like I walked home from school for the first time or, you know, things like that, that actually are extremely formative to a soul, but we don't notice them at the time. Yeah. It's so funny that you say this, Heidi, I was... My family has asked my dad to write his memoir, basically, you know, kind of like write his life story. And so he's been working on it. He grew up in Kentucky and his dad was a pretty bad guy. And he came down to the kitchen the other day when I was home and I asked him how it was going. And he's like, it's good. It's amazing how many things you remember once you kind of start telling the story. You just remember all these things kind of highlight and he said one of the things that he likes is like, my book is about my dad. You know, like the early part of my book is about my dad because it was he was such a troubled figure and he made my life's dad so difficult in so many different ways that my dad just sort of got accustomed to and, and didn't really see the meaning of his dad's influence on his life when he was a kid. But, you know, as a grown man, now looking back, it was easier to kind of assign the meanings of his childhood to that person, mm-hmm. which is, I'm just echoing your story. Right. And I wonder, you know what, let's apply that to Ruben. It, these episodes that he recounts to us, the crows, the tramp. I mean, it, it, maybe that's, this is what you guys are saying. Maybe that's what's going on. Right. He is just doesn't know yet how to assign meaning. And so he's kind of, he's giving us just what he remembers. And he's hoping that his memory is the thing that's going to assign meaning, not his ability to actually narrate. Because it's, it's interesting because 
we talked about how the narrator is kind of two people in one. He's the boy, Ruben, but he's also, as you just said, Heidi, he's an introspective man later in his life. And this, our story is being told through both of the, those lenses. It seems like both of those lenses are kind of like a pair of bifocals that the narrator is wearing. And sometimes he sees out of the left, sometimes out of the right. And sometimes the, the things that he sees from the lens of his younger self might not, uh, as chickens do, come home to roost. They might <laughs> not be portentous. Right. It's, and it's interesting to see how he's discovering things along the way, too. Um, like, like sometimes it's the boy and sometimes it feels like the narrator's discovering something too, discovering something about himself, the older version. Like there's that bit, actually, I mentioned the scene earlier where he's um, listening, whether listen, where he and Sweet are listening to them talk in the kitchen and um, they're talking about, I marked it, it's on 140, uh, at the end of 139, they're talking about what happened and then... Um, his dad says, Ruben saw it. I'd trade with him if I could. I didn't yes. understand this right away. Trade what? Poor boy. This from Bertie. Yes. Speaking of Davy, I figured out in the weather with his collar turned up. But she meant me for dad said, you'd be surprised, Bertie. He's been real grown up. He and Swede both. They've both stood, they've stood up better than I have, he added. And then he writes, it was hard talk to decipher. What was supposed to happen to you if you were present at a tragedy? Was there some sort of damage? I wasn't sure. The fact is, beyond the occasional scary dream, my chief response to the shootings was a self-centered misery that David had to go away. I just missed my brother. Which, that goes back to that, the idea of it's a love story that you were talking about, Heidi. Also, the Jungian people can have... Jungian and the Freudian people can have fun with that paragraph. But um, he's discovering, as a child, he's discovering things about himself. And then looking back, he's discovering things about himself then and now and seeing how it all fits together. It's like these little clues to the story that are happening a bit at a time right? As, as both of them discover new things. But he doesn't right. know what to make of it at the time. He doesn't know the significance of it. He doesn't really know. He doesn't even know that you're supposed to feel a certain way about yeah. this traumatic thing that happened that almost anybody would be deeply bothered by. And he, for him, it's like, other than a few dreams, but who cares about those, right? It's almost like he's discarding the dreams. Whereas a lot of people are going to be like, the dreams say everything about what you're your subconscious is doing right the dreams are everything right? and he's like i don't know i just had a few dreams who cares right well they're just echoes right they're just clues as you just said and i think that's one of the mistakes that the psychoanalysts make is the real world is actually the real thing we're just echoing in our minds when we have those kinds of dreams um but they do indicate something. And I like that Lee Fanger puts them in there. They are more than literary clues. They're also very human things that would actually happen to the, the dreams going mean. through trauma. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And how Swede externalizes them in her stories is also very human. Yeah. I love that there's always this sort of gray area between his dreams and then the Miracles, the weird things he sees with his dad and sweet stories and questions of what's real and what's not are filtered all throughout all three of those things. And, you know, they're not that different from each other. The miracles, her stories and the dreams are not fundamentally at their core that much different from each other. And that adds a, right. a mystery to the story, which is, you know, it's sort of a hauntedness to the story, which is really, yes. which is really interesting and a weirdness, like, uh, you know, uh, not in a bad way, not in a bad sort of weirdness, but a, a Coen Brothers sort of weirdness. Right. 
Yeah, well, like a bit of a distortion, but a distortion that actually shows things, shows the truth. Right. Let's let's go back to the question that I mentioned at the top that I wanted to talk about because I think it's one that, you know, based on the the conversation that I'm seeing online, there are enough people that agree with you, Tim, that Swede and her storytelling is it seems a little bit uh unrealistic, maybe not based in in, in realism. Yeah. Um and so let's talk about that here before we go. I think we should uh, check in on that question after yeah. sort of in each episode to see if any if our opinions change on that. So to summarize, Tim, you were saying that her sort of she's more than just precocious. She is right. She's got insight into the sort of meta textual elements of writing that are exactly. beyond a child of her age. Heidi, exactly. after reading this section, well, Tim, I'll ask you this. In one word, after reading this section, has your perspective on that changed? No. Heidi, has yours? No. I'm more firmly entrenched. <laughs> I love it. Okay. I love it. It's, you know what? It's so funny that we're talking about this. I didn't know if we were going to talk about this today, but I spoke to my goddaughter last night. Now, of course, I'm her godfather. Of course, I think that she's super precocious, but she tests extremely high. Like her, her dad was telling me how high that she tests, you know, and I was talking to her last night. <laughs> I'm so bad. And I was like, I said, Hey, how old are you? I'm 10. I was like, yeah. And you're extremely precocious and you're not I, I, like as precocious as she is. She's not capable of doing the sorts of things yet that sweet is doing and i just for me i was kind of confirming my hypothesis i hate to be such a downer on this because i think the book is so lovely but this aspect i am struggling with sweet a little bit there are aspects of her personality and her writing that i find so compelling but there's times that she kind of bumps over into uh, an adult perspective that I don't think is warranted by the book. Okay, can I want to kind of break this down here to see if we yeah. can identify break exactly it down. Break where, it down. where the sort of disagreement might be. So on the can one you hand, put it in the form of a rap, please, <laughs> as long as you're going to break it down. <laughs> um, I would need Sweet here to write it for me. Um, so perfect. So um, and then probably Davy would have to do it. Um, right. So. Okay, it seems like there's two aspects to Swede that need to be discussed here. That might be, it may be both of these things is a point of disagreement, or maybe it's just one. On the one hand, we have her writing, like the quality of her writing. And then on the other hand, we have her, um, the way she thinks about it. Is that fair, Tim? That there's those, those are yes, the two aspects. Right. Exactly. And you think that in both of those cases, it's unrealistic, right? Well, no, I think that the writing is plausible. I think it's, even for me, it's a stretch because it's so advanced. It's so good that I think she's nine, correct? Sweet is nine. Mm -hmm. I, I, sometimes I read some of those rhymes and I think, boy, that is really advanced for a nine-year-old. But she I'm going to grant Robert Louis possible. Yeah, right. So right. You, you, can, you can accept that she is a gifted child yes, who could, who could sure. theoretically produce 
gifted verse. One thing I do like, by the way, is if you read it closely, there are times when the verse is not perfect. Like the meter, like there's little mm-hmm. things about it that kind of bought, like if I was working with a student, I'd be like, okay, we got to fix this line. So it's not perfect, but it's really, really good. Especially for a yeah. child of that age. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so, so for you, that's plausible. What's not plausible is that she would be, it be capable of thinking it's the, the sort of meta aspect of it. Exactly. To think about the nature of writing and the decision-making process in writing the way that she does. Exactly. So Heidi, um, do you, do you, is that, do you disagree with that part of it? Here's what I agree with. I agree that she is too precocious to be a real person. Here's what I would stand on though is that the story absolutely has to have her that way. And it fails if she's... So within the world of the story, which is, of course, where yes. we always talk about, we like to we like to at least, you know, come down, yes. ultimately conclude. Yeah. Right. So the nature of this story dictates that, that she doesn't have to be realistic is what you're arguing. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm arguing. And that it actually, it just doesn't work if she is... If, if he wrote her with the at the developmental level of my nine year old child, she's ten now, but she wasn't like Swede. So so how come Heidi? Why is the story throwing her under the bus? Because <laughs> um, she's an actual human, not a character in a story. But the the because Swede, I think partly for Ruben's sake, because. Ruben has to be surrounded by extraordinary people in order for his character to work. And Swede needs to be the youngest because she has to be the most vulnerable in the family to have been hurt the way that she was and to provoke that response in Davy. And she has to be a writer in order to channel all of those all of all of what anger is saying about the nature of story and and what it means to be a bad guy and how evil invades the world of the the childhood world of innocence um and and creates a dissonance in the soul because i and i think that's the most important part about swede is the thing that people find the most unrealistic and i don't disagree that it's unrealistic but i think it's essential because what what anger is embodying there what what it's an objective correlative to is the response of goodness and innocence to invading evil which is it doesn't belong here but i can't get rid of it Mm. and and that's what swede's reaction is to valdez in the story that's why valdez is crawling into the bunk in the dreams with Ruben who's not an artist because he's not extraordinary like Swede is and so he he has he experiences the same thing through a dream but in a way he's only imitating Swede which I think is necessary to both of their character development mm-hmm. one thing I like about what you're saying is that um I think how to phrase this actually act, act in a way that actually works because it was more of an impression. And then I started talking and I realized I don't actually have the words for this because I'm not Swede. Um, <laughs> it seems like she, she identifies, she's able to identify the problem that she's running up against. Like I can't kill him, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem to me like she can give actual voice to why it's a problem. And that's, so right. that's what, that's the difference for me. It. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. there's something inside of her soul that's saying, I can't kill this guy. But she's, it's not like she's coming out and giving some kind of like, she's not like writing an essay 
metacritical theory about it. Yeah, about why she can't do that. So, you know, I, I, I think I'm some like when I re- read it for the first time, I was I felt how you felt, Tim. It didn't bother yeah. me. I think the way maybe it is bothering you. If that's maybe that's too harsh of a word. Yeah. But the more I read it, and the more I kind of you know, I think the book on the surface comes across like a a Wendell Berry, you know, traditional American frontier huh. Western story where it feels like it's real. This realism is sort of written with this sort of. American sort of Americana, you know, there's this Americana at the yeah. core of the book, which is sort of based in realism, right? Like, you know, could be a based on the Dust Bowl or something. But then it ultimately, the more I think about this book, the more it feels like it's a, a, a Western fairy tale or a Western fantasy novel or something like that. It's Americana mixed with like a German fairy tale or something. And the more I think yeah, that's about a that, great description. That's the, a great description, David. Mm-hmm. Or the other thing I was thinking is, a book like uh, something like As You Like It, which I know you guys are going to be doing soon, where there's like these different places, you know, like the woods become this like uh-huh. fantasy realm or something like that. And you get that in a lot of European fairy tales where like different parts of the world have a little bit more magic in them. And so I, w- I was thinking about that with this book. I haven't really gotten too deep into that and thinking about it. But this book, if, I think if you don't accept it, if, if it doesn't need to just be Americana, like if it doesn't just have to have the realism of traditional Americana stories, then it's easier to accept her being beyond precocious because, because if there's a little bit of magic everywhere, then, then you can sort of accept that. But it doesn't have to be in a way where you're like, the book doesn't give answers, so I'm just going to blame it on magic, right? Um, I mean, right. I mean, magic in the literal sense that there's actually magic. Like, I'm not talking about magic like Narnia. I'm talking about you know magic in a more sort of um, uh, like it's sort of, ex machina kind of way. Like the yeah, magic just solves everything. Right. Yeah, that's. I'm not really talking about that. I'm talking about almost like there's like magic as like a mode of thinking about it. Or uh, it's hard oh, to I me see. to explain. Like, like there's a sort of magic as in like. Um, not magic like it solves problems, but magic like um, th- that there is something like there's, greater like there's at work. Fairy dust sprinkled in in various places throughout our geography. There's fairy dust sprinkled here. It's also sprinkled here. Is that is that what you're saying yeah, like, by magic, it's, it's David? A co- yeah, like there's a sort of magic that like it's the same reason there's miracles happening, and we sort of accept them. Like we have questions about them, but we accept them because that's the world that they're in. Like the world that they're uh-huh. in has this sort of fairy dust, and so these things can be plausible within the context of the story but it's not necessarily like it's not magic that the author's putting in there just to solve all his problems it's magic because the world is magical it's not magic because the author had a problem he needed to solve and so someone waves a wand at it and it solves the problem what's what's the saying i can't remember who it came from but basically the idea is i think this is was applied to fantasy novels that you get one lie at the beginning of the book and that lie you know can be um people are giants when they just don't know it or something like that and the book has to be it has to adhere strictly to that one lie and my complaint and by the way i'm reluctant to like i don't want to harp on it because really i i think i just want to strike one or two lines from the book that's all I really want to do is there's just one or two lines. I just want to say like, no, let's just take that one out for me. Well, I mean, Tim, you can, com- you complaining about this led to great conversation. So that's the whole point. Right? I know I had no idea. And I was really reluctant to bring it up because I'm, I'm enjoying the book so much. Um, the complaint that I have is that I feel like the one lie about the book that, that Swedes metacritical 
capacity is not in keeping with that lie. I think that lie is what you're calling, David, magic. The kind of like, it's an infused with magic. And I'm calling it the sort of, um, it's the fictional, it's the rules of this fictional world. I just feel like, yeah, I think that Swede kind of strays away from the rules of that that our author has set up for the book sometimes. Mm. Hmm. I got, okay. I'm going to have to think about it. I'm going to have to think about, okay. Think about that. It's I'm reluctant that- because I, you guys, you, we get in this situation sometimes on close reads, like you have a complaint, you know, about the story or about a character with a criticism. story or about a criticism. And it's not a, you didn't take a, take a ticket, write down the complaint and stick it in the box. Right. Yeah. It's a criticism. And you're reluctant to bring it up because the big picture of the story or the book is, wow, I really like this thing. And I do. I, I really am. I'm so glad this was on our reading list for this year because I'm thoroughly enjoying this book. So I'm reluctant to bring it up and like cast a pebble into the otherwise, otherwise placid waters of our readers' imaginations. Because I don't want to like obsessing about this. Of the river, no, I don't think I don't think the, the metaphor of the river works because the river's surface is already river is kind of an uncomfortable thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there aren't many of those. Um, <laughs> Not healthy ones. So, so that's my mea culpa. I am sorry <laughs> to any reader who loves this part of the book and finds Tim kind of like just. Yeah, throwing a wrench and everything. Yeah, the grumpy. Get off my lawn! Get off my lawn, you kids! Leaf Anger is probably listening, and he's like, he's like writing a strongly worded retort to your criticism. That's exactly right. It's going to be really like well written, you know. To whom it may concern, Mister McIntosh. Yeah, an open letter to Tim McIntosh. That's right. If he wants to do that, published in Forma. (laughs) If he wants to do that and publish it somewhere, that'd probably be great for the show. So. It would be, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you mentioned that one rule thing because I'm actually working on a story right now for my kids and I'm running into this exact same problem. Like, what well, not, it? it's not the exact Proceed. same problem. It's the problem with this sort of question of the one lie. So I'm working on this story where these, um, basically the sort of magical lie or the lie is that there's this this house that these four kids live in. They're like, grown kids but they're supposed to rep you know represent my kids they live in a house that only reveals itself to the people that wants it to see them so they're living in this house and then this woman and this child come to the house and they they need help it's, it's actually kind of a, a like a fa- fantasy western story actually they live out these this this mother and this young child come to the house they need help because there's bad guys i'll just put it that way and then they know that they should help her because the house has revealed it. Like she was able to come to the house and see it. And so there's only oh. some characters that can see the house and some people that can't. And that's sort of like the problem. And so trying to figure out, I'm trying to figure out if I have to explain why. Because to me, like right. it doesn't, I don't, I'm just going to be on, I don't know why. <laughs> Right. Yeah. 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 I don't know why that's the case. It's the, right. it's the story, <laughs> but like right. in well, my head, I'm like, it's like my kids in the gonna... wind and the willows and how can they eat meat? Right. You yeah, don't have yeah. to explain that. Yeah. yeah don't exactly. explain it. It's just the story. <laughs> they get to eat ham when they're a mole and a rat. To <laughs> <laughs> be clear, it's rats, keep... the, we, everybody who <laughs> asks that question is like, we know rats eat 
ham, right? Like the rats are in the trash <laughs> eating ham out of every, outside of every New York restaurant. <laughs> but your point is really valid because nobody reads the wind in the willows and asks, why are a mole and a rat talking? You accept that. You want to know why are they eating egg salad, right? So that's... <laughs> Like this is this is a great example of the one why. So I don't think you explain it. That's just the way it is. That is that's that's the story. The force. I mean, to go back to David's allusion to Star Wars, the force. That was Heidi. The moment the force was. Oh, sorry, 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 Heidi. The moment the force was explained. Remember, yeah, and stupid. it was, became so stupid. They they explained the one lie, and you're like. We don't care about what is it called? Right. The little Adam. What, what in the world? <laughs> Take us back to Jar Jar Binks. That's an improvement <laughs> on Metaclorian. Yes, you're totally right. Don't explain it. It's just well, a house yeah. that can only don't explain it. Well, so uh, it's unless funny it's I, a character in the story, unless it's like a wizard that's in the story. Well, there is a hermit character in the story. Who like lives mm-hmm. in a he like lives in the woods. Very Arthurian. And, but, I like yeah, it. and and I he like it. he tells the, the the young girl and the and the baby, the young child, to go to them. Like he he knows who they are and he, mm-hmm. he tells her they will help you. But he he's not the source of the magic. But I was thinking about this while I was writing it, and unfortunately I was going it was gonna be like a Christmas present for my kids that I was gonna give them on the twelfth day of Christmas, but then our whole family got the flu for ten days and I wasn't able to finish it. Yeah. So I'm just gonna work on it and give it to them when I can. But I was thinking about while reading this book because there are all these questions of miracles or magic. And so I had this, I'm thinking, is he going to reveal all? And there's even things I don't really remember from reading the book the first time, like to what extent he reveals things. Mm. And so I was, as I was thinking about, you know, you were talking about the idea of the meta sort of aspects of writing a story and, and, and Swede having these problems. But anybody who's ever written a story or a play Tim or a poem or whatever it is, you keep, you always run up against these problems. Yes. And you you can't always articulate exactly why it doesn't feel right. And and as I was reading, I was like, okay, I, I have this question for myself and I don't know what to do. I don't know how yeah. to solve the problem. And so I kind of empathize with Swede's problem there. But then I'm thinking, well, did Ang- Anger had to run into some of these problems too as he's writing his novel over however long it took him to write it. I'm guessing a couple of years or something. And then mm-hmm. you're revising it and you're constantly asking myself, does this make mm-hmm. yourself, does this make sense? Does this work? I have to solve a problem here. Are the, is the, how are the readers going to feel about this? Is this too much of a gap? Is this too much mystery? And so you're always trying to figure out how to solve these problems. And um, so Swedes, yeah. I have a lot of empathy for Swedes, mm-hmm. Swedes conundrum. For sure. Annie Dillard in The Writing Life, if, in my memory, it's the first page of The Writing Life, which is a great book. She talks about, she says something like, um, she's using the metaphor of building a house to writing a long tale. And she says, you see a crack in the wall. You know the wall has to come out. You pray it's not a load-bearing wall, <laughs> and you know, like yeah. you, whenever you solve, a, whenever you're solving a problem in a story, I mean, in some ways, that's what writing is. It's like, especially narrative writing, it's solving one problem after another in this world that you've created, and sometimes there's a crack in the wall, and you don't know if you're going to be able to solve it and how you're going to be able to solve it, and you just pray. It's not of such structural importance that you're in, if you take it out, the whole house is going to collapse. Right. So then the question is, if he removes the two lines you want to take out, does it all collapse to him? No way. Not at all. <laughs> That's part of the reason that I feel a little bit strongly about it is because I don't think they're necessary lines. 
So you feel like they're a distraction? They are to me. Mm-hmm. Well, you have been distracted by it. I know. I keep, yeah. <laughs> no, Actually, I, I'm, I'm going to blame you a little bit, David. I was willing to just totally sidestep it on this podcast. I was like, just button it up, Macintosh. There's no reason to say anything <laughs> about I, it. And then I gave you And the then score. you baited me, David. You baited me. Yeah, well, look at all the good discussions we're having, and even the people that have it online. Heidi, do you want to do you want to wade into this? You, I, you keep no. like, keeping this look on your face, like oh, you have something I, to say. I, I mean, I always have something to say, but this, I, I, I want to know what the lines are. Um, it will take me a second to find out to to look them up. It's because it's not this section that we just read, but it's the previous section. It would take me a second. It's where she's trying to figure out how to solve. Where she says, "I can't, I can't kill him. I can't kill Valdez." And and the st- I think it's the story doesn't work. Okay, so it's or her assessment like that. that the story is yes. that sounds a little bit too much like someone in an MFA is what you're saying. Yes, like, yes. Like she's they're workshopping in, and someone says to her, "Well, I don't, I don't know if that works there. If you if you do that, exactly." Now, if she <laughs> That's my just MFA like- voice. <laughs> Man, I got to tell you, David, I love that MFA voice, buddy. I love the MFA voice. <laughs> I want to appear if, again. Can it be a regular <laughs> character on the show? <laughs> It'd be a surprise. <laughs> what if Facebook just starts blowing up over the F- MFA voice? Please give us more MFA voice. Right. You know, I'm the podcast is missing more MFA voice. <laughs> I'm going to have to go back and listen again just to know what I sounded like. I don't know that I have a real grasp on that character. So Tim, I may need you to write me a backstory for it. Right, 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 right. We'll flush it out. We'll put some clothes on those bones. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's a little bit of a naked character right now. Hey Tim, by the way, I have a, you want to write a screenplay with me? I have an idea. Yeah. It's about two. I like that. Two brothers who are, um, 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 private detectives. Mm. Well, don't give it all away, David. I didn't. That's it. That's I know. I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't have to write it with you, but can I just like be on the text stream and? Yeah, you can help so us break break the story. Okay, that sounds great. We have to figure out the crime they're going to solve. I'll be a consultant, and then oh yeah, that's what, the billing. That's where the money rolls in. <laughs> Producer, Hi. Producer, we'll give you a story. We'll give you a story credit. Perfect. I'll take it. Howdy, what's a passage or a line or something that you that you particularly loved from this from pages uh, 94 to 148? On page 137, when they're in um when they're at August and Birdie's house. And I don't know if this is the first time the word has been used, but he uses the word peace on this. You know, I'm always looking for words that are in the title mm-hmm. um, in a book. Um, and I really loved this little passage about, I, I loved the whole chapter and the whole interlude. And when they're sitting in the, uh, they're having the conversation with Augustine and with Bertie, and they're talking about how starved they are for details about Davy um, and how nourishing that is, more nourishing than the meal itself. Um, but on page 137, right in the middle, starting with one more gratifying detail. One more gratifying detail. Sure. Davy, retiring upstairs, had twice laughed in his sleep. A strange thing to hear, said Bertie, who lay wakeful all that night. 
a boyish laugh drifting down those stairs again. I can't describe the sort of peace this conversation gave me. Davy was practically in the room with us. Every creak of the old house was like his footstep. I believe it was one of those rare nights that would have dad would have let us stay up late. But August said, you kids can take the West room tonight. And then it goes on, but, and I don't want to read the whole paragraph, but I loved the idea of Davy laughing in his sleep. And I wondered why, um, because I feel like that is kind of mysterious. Like you can make some speculations, but it's mm-hmm. just such a wonderful picture of Davy. Um, and then also, I don't know if it's the first time the word peace is used, but it seems, I think, the first time that Reuben is somehow at peace and it's connected to Davy laughing in his sleep. I just thought that was lovely. And it's interesting that he uses the word drifting to yeah. describe what the laugh is doing, which is kind of a river, like a river. concept. Yep. Yeah. You wonder if he's perhaps laughing because he's in his sleep, he's, he's remembering um, things with his family or something like a dog who's chasing a rabbit, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. it's like the equivalent of a dog. That's the equivalent of a human laughing in their sleep. (laughs) I feel like he did. He's done such a good job. Leif Inger of making Davy um, both uh, very clear and also very opaque. Like he is this mystery Hmm. to his own family, but, and to us as readers, because we're getting to know these the, the, these other main characters so well. Um, yeah. But we also know Davy's motivations, and there's this moral dilemma around him. But in some ways, he's he's very clear. Like he wanted to do the right thing, and he thought the right thing was to kill these boys, and so he did it. He made yeah. it happen. And the, like you you get to there's this strength of character in him. There's this. Um, that he in some ways is very clear, but also just always a mystery, always this you no know, this this thing you're chasing after, this questing object. Hmm. Hmm. Tim, you got a passage? Page 131 at the bottom of the paragraph that begins the page. Uh, um since that fearful night. Dad had responded with the almost impossible work of belief. He had burned with repentance as though his own hand had fired the gun. This last sentence, I I was so surprised with it by this sentence. You know this is true. And if you don't, it is I, the witness, who am to blame. Yeah. I I kind of want to hang on to that. Yeah, I don't. I did not expect that at all. If the paragraph had ended without that sentence, that would have been a perfect conclusion to that section. But the fact that Reuben kind of counts his own uh, what ability, or or I don't know that he questions his own ability, but he he the stakes are that if we don't believe that the father is. Um, responded with repentance, then he, as the witness, is the one who is to blame. I was really struck by that, and I don't quite know why, at this point in the story, why Reuben feels that way. And I wonder if we'll find out later in the book. But, yeah, the last sentence was really jarring to me. Not jarring in a bad way, just surprising. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 thematically it seems like it's almost in keeping though with Swede's question of it doesn't you know 
like the questions of sort of how to tell a story. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Questioning like, is this going to work? Is this going to be enough for my reader to to have the right experience with what I'm doing? Uh-huh. And it's almost a little bit of a shout out to the Gospel of John, in which John states that the purpose he's writing this gospel is that so so that you may believe. And there's a little bit of that going on huh. here with. Reuben saying this, I am the witness. But the thing that just I'm I'm questioning is why is he the one who's responsible for us seeing the father in this light? Why is it not my responsibility? Why is he putting that responsibility on his own shoulders? And I may be reading way too deep into it because I mean, but the gospel of John, John does not say, hey, I'm writing this so that you may believe. And if you don't believe it's my, it's my responsibility. Mm. Yeah. 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 Do you have one, David? Well, you know, one of the scenes I love in this section is the one where he goes out with August and they see the little boy and the dog and the Turkey and all that. Yeah. And the dog chases the, the boy, the boy, he says, I've never seen an ambush better laid than the one the turkey laid on the little boy with the oatmeal or whatever. And then the dog chases it away and <laughs> stares at them. Um, and then I just, I don't need to read the whole passage, but after that they go home and they're having breakfast and it talks about how Swede's all upset that he got to go ride the horse and all that. Um, and, uh, he's talking to his dad and he says, we wrote, this is the very end of 148. This is the end of the section. We rode over to the farm, I said, noting that August hadn't offered this information. Yes, Dad said. I expected you would. Did you take the river? There's, there's the river. Um, yes, sir. We walked over and trotted back. How'd the shelter belt look? I had to be honest. Kind of scraggly. Dad nodded. The barn? It's leaning pretty good. There are cows in it, though. At least one cow and some new kitties, I guess. Uh-huh. House? I saw where your room was. I was going to say something about the boarded window and the weathery paint and how the chimney was coming apart, but dad looked so skinny and thoughtful I decided not to. He didn't ask anything else either. Say Rube, August said after a moment. Tell about the turkey. And I, I really like the way he writes dialogue in a lot of these scenes because there's so much... I mean, he, he draws attention to it a little bit, but there's so much that's left sort of unsaid, you know, there's he the dialogue is almost never overwritten like he doesn't ever feel the need to have them over explaining or um he doesn't even give us necessarily what they you know how they responded to the story of the uh of the the turkey and the and the dog and all that and you know i think a lesser writer might try to over overwrite some of the dialogue but there's so much subtext and there's so much between the lines in the dialogue that i think um that it makes it really enjoyable and really precise. Uh, so I, I, that's just what I was thinking about when I was reading that passage. Mm. Um, I think he's really, I like, I could see him writing, a, like having written a play or something like that. Um, although Tim, you might be, I, yeah, I'm not, a it is the highest, it is the highest form of the narrative arts. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of which, tell us about, uh, what's going to be happening on the plays, the thing. Um, Heidi and I, beginning this week, are going to record Act One of William Shakespeare's As You Like It, one of his beloved comedies. And Probably my favorite, so I'll have to listen. Is it really? Oh. It's my, I think it's my favorite of all his plays. Oh, wow. 
That's kind of a big statement. David, I, seriously, why are you not in on the play? I didn't know why, like, this should be a three-person thing. David's like, yeah, like, I just got tons of time on my hands, Tim. <laughs> oh, here's some time. I just, right I, I just found it in my back pocket. Here's some more time. <laughs> <laughs> well, because you guys do a great job, and I don't need to muddy the waters, but here's what we'll do. Maybe Nicely I'll, I done. Will, Nicely done, David. Will, you're right. I, I will read it again in, while you guys are going through it, and then at some point, I'll come on and talk about why it's one of my favorites. Okay, that's great. great. But I'll let you so guys handle like, the heavy, heavy work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Heidi has talked about in Act 4, it's kind of like the moment where if you're going to pause in the commentary, it's during Act 4 because Act 4 is so often kind of... Help me, Heidi. What's the right word? I don't want to say... Well, Act 3 has a turning point and Act 4 right. has all of the action that's related to the turning point, right? <laughs> So maybe we bring you crisis. on for act four or act five. We'll talk about it. Okay. We'll talk um, about it. I, I, part of it is that I love the, I mean, I love, uh, uh, what's it? Rosalind. Rosalind. Yeah, of course. She's and when I was in college, I actually made a short film. I took a, a course on Shakespeare and film. So, you know, we were reading plays and then we were reading them specifically to then study the filmic adaptations of them. And we had oh, to cool. make of, we had to make a short film where, we had our own interpretation of the, the woods, the forest. And it had, to, I mean, obviously had, we could, we could try to make it a fantasy world, but most of us really didn't have the, the budget for that. So we had to make it yeah. take place in our own world. So um, maybe I'll talk about what we did in that, but I just, you know, I think maybe one of the reasons I like it is because we have a lot of, uh, I, I've read it a lot. <laughs> You've got a lot of skin in that game. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. <clears throat> But all right, well, that sounds great. Um, as I said earlier, we're going to be discussing crime and punishment on the uh, the Patreon shows too. So be on the lookout for that. We're going to be recording the um, first half of part one of that here pretty soon. We actually have to set a date for that, by the way. Probably do that off the air though. Um, and then don't forget about the daily poem. Uh, Heidi, thanks for filling in for me while I was um, in bed. <laughs> it's been really fun. So, and I'm trying not to be very insecure about what people said about it when they emailed you and asked where you were. So. Oh, no, it, no, it wasn't like, it, it wasn't like, well, who is this lady? On where the show? are you? <laughs> no, it's more like, are you okay? That kind of thing. Um, yes. So you don't have to be insecure. You, you did a good job. <laughs> Thanks for filling in for me. So that we've got that. We've got all kinds of great stuff. Um, and don't forget about the new show that we launched, uh, which is called Victoria's World. And that's with our friend Noah Tetzner, who you might know from his popular history podcast, The History of Vikings. And he's kind of doing, he's doing 15 episodes exploring um, the Victorian era. So the first two episodes are up now and they were on um, just everyday life in the Victorian era and then the music of the Victorian era. And then uh, later on Thursday, Thursday of this week, so this is going to air on Wednesday. So then tomorrow you'll be able to hear episode three, which is going up and then that'll go up each week. So make sure you subscribe to that. We've got lots of great stuff coming that I can't, you know, formally announce yet, but be on the lookout for that. Lots of history related things coming. So be ready to hit that subscribe button <laughs> for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh. I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening till next week. Happy reading. Happy reading.